beginning a new section today in God's plan for a healthy church as we move into chapter 7. And as we begin this section, it's really reconciliation, the heart of relationships, part one, really their introduction. We get the sense of the passage. We'll read it through for, for these 15 verses that have to do, among other things, reconciliation. I'd like to read our passage together and begin to get our bearings as we start to get a sense of Paul's intent for the church here as he continues to reveal his own heart in this matter of settling hard feelings and settling misunderstandings. And so look there, we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you. In the seats, I'll give you verse cues if you're not in that translation so we can stay together. So 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2, it starts with make room. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Verse 3, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Verse 4, great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. Verse 5, for even when we came to Macedonia... Our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Verse 6, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. Verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I do regret it, for I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. Verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Verse 11, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Verse 12, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Verse 13, for this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more at, for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Verse 14, for if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. Verse 15, his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Verse 16, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Let's stop right there. <clears throat> in Tim Kimmel's book, The Little House on the Freeway, he recounts a story that really connects very well with our new section. It's a little longer, but I think it's worth the listen. He says, shortly after the turn of the century, Japan invaded, conquered, and occupied Korea. 
Of all their oppressors, Japan was the most ruthless. They overwhelmed the Koreans with a brutality that would sicken the strongest stomachs. Many Koreans still alive today have the physical and emotional scars from that Japanese occupation. One group singled out for concentrated oppression were the Christians. When the Japanese army overpowered Korea, one of the first things they did was board up the evangelical churches and eject most foreign missionaries. The conquerors started by refusing to allow churches to meet and jailing many of the key Christian spokesmen. The oppression intensified as the Japanese military increased its profile in the South Pacific and really kindled a deep hatred in the souls of those who were oppressed. One pastor persistently entreated his local Japanese police chief for the permission to meet for services. His nagging was finally accommodated and the police chief offered it to unlock the church for one meeting. Didn't take long for word to travel. Committed Christians starving for an opportunity for unhindered worship quickly made their plans and long before dawn on that promised Sunday, Korean families throughout a wide area made their way to the church. They passed the staring eyes of their Japanese captors, but nothing was going to steal away their joy. As they closed the doors behind them, they shut out the cares of oppression and drew together with a spirit anxious to glorify the Lord. Song after song rang through the open windows into the bright Sunday morning. For a handful of peasants listening nearby, the last two songs this congregation sang seemed suspended in time. It was during a stanza of Nearer My God to Thee that the Japanese police chief waiting outside gave the orders. The people toward the back of the church could hear them when they barricaded the doors, but no one realized that they had doused the church with kerosene until they smelled the smoke. The dried wooden skin of the small church quickly ignited and fumes filled the structure as the flames began to lick on baseboards on the interior walls. It was an immediate rush for the windows, but with only momentary hope as the men climbing out the windows came back a shot through with a hail of bullets. The good pastor knew it was the end, and with a calm that no doubt came from the Holy Spirit, he led his congregation in a hymn penned by Isaac Watts 200 years before, and whose words really served as much a fitting farewell to earth as it did a hello to heaven. The first few words were all the worshipers needed. With smoke burning their eyes, they instantly joined as one to sing their hope and leave their legacy, and their song became a serenade to the shocked and helpless witnesses outside. They sang, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And just before the roof collapsed, they sang the last verse. Their words, Kimmel says, an eternal testimony to their faith. They sang, But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. The strains of music were lost in the roar of, a flame, of the flames, but the souls who left singing finished their chorus in the throne room of God. As hard as it was for the villagers clearing the incinerator remains, that was really the easy part, Erasing the hate would be much more difficult. For some of the relatives of the victims, this carnage was too much. Evil had stooped too low, and there seemed to be no way that they could curb the bitter loathing that they had for the Japanese. In the decades that followed, the unforgiveness that led to bitterness was passed on to a new generation. The Japanese, although conquered, remained a hated enemy. 
and the monument the Koreans built at the location of the fire not only memorialized the people who died, but stood as a mute reminder of their pain. The Korean people who found it too hard to forgive could not rejoice in the peace that passes all understanding because hatred had choked their joy. It wasn't until 1972 that any kind of hope came. A group of Japanese pastors traveling through Korea came upon the memorial. And when they read the details of the tragedy and the names of the spiritual brothers and sisters who had perished, they were overcome with shame. Their country had sinned, and even though none of them were personally involved, some were not even born at the time of the tragedy, they still felt a national guilt that could not be excused. They returned to Japan, committed to right the wrong, and there was an immediate outpouring of love for their fellow believers. They raised over 10 million yen, and the money was transferred through proper channels, and a beautiful white church building was erected at the site of the tragedy. When the dedication service for the new building was held, a delegation from Japan joined the relatives and the special guests. Although their generosity was acknowledged and their attempt at making peace was appreciated, the memories were still there. The Koreans' bitterness had festered for decades. Christian brother or not, these Japanese were descendants of a ruthless enemy. The speeches were made, the details of the tragedy recalled, and the names of the dead honored. It was time to bring the service to a close. And someone in charge of the agenda thought it would be appropriate to conclude with the same two songs that were sung the day the church was burned. So the song leader began the words, Nearer my God to thee. Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. Even though it be a cross that raiseth me, still all my song shall be nearer my God to thee. But something remarkable happened as the voices mingled on the fourth verse. Then with my waking thoughts, bright with thy praise, out of my stony grief, Bethel I'll raise, so by my woes to be nearer my God to thee. As the memories of the past mixed with the truth of the song, resistance started to melt. And the words, out of my stony grief, a house of God I'll raise, and the inspiration that gave hope to a doomed collection of churchgoers in a past generation gave hope again. The song leader closed the service with a hymn at the cross, and the normally stoic Japanese could not contain themselves. The tears that began to fill their eyes during the song suddenly gushed really from deep inside, Kimmel says. He turned to their Korean spiritual relatives and begged them to forgive and the guarded, calloused hearts of the Koreans were not quick to surrender. But the love of the Japanese believers, not intimidated by decades of hatred, tore at the Koreans' emotions. At the cross, at the cross, when I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, and one Korean turned to a Japanese brother, and then another, and then the floodgates holding back a wave of emotion let go, and they clung to each other, and they wept, and tears of repentance and forgiveness intermingled to bathe the sight of an old nightmare. Heaven had sent the gift of reconciliation to a little white church in Korea. Suffering, of course, is part of life. People hurt people. Almost all of us have experienced it at some time. Maybe you felt it when you came home to find your spouse that abandoned you, or maybe you felt it when your integrity was marred by an untruth, or, or like Paul, when you feel you've suffered at the hands or actions of someone else. And it can kill you on the inside. Bitterness clamps down on your soul like iron shackles. You make a jail which holds you. Hatred preserves pain and keeps wounds open and hurts fresh. But Paul was not content to live there. 
and he doesn't want the Corinthian church to live there either. And even though the offending party was some of the people in the church, Paul was willing to bridge the gap. And in so doing, by a combination of truth and humility and common ground and encouragement, he puts the church in a position where it could follow God's plan for a healthy body. And that attitude, of course, becomes our example as we deal with hurt and possible unforgiveness in our own lives. So I'd like you to look at the first three verses of our new section because uh, we looked at them briefly before and make a connection that we've made uh, a little a few months ago. Look there, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Paul says, Make room in our, for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Verse 3, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. And this passage, as we saw a number of months ago, is a continuation of the thought we looked at in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Look back there just a little bit in your copy of God's Word, and I'll put it on the screen behind me. If you remember, when we read this passage in 11 through 13, I told you that really Paul has some things to say in between, but he picks up the same thought again in chapter 7. So we'll go back and look at it. If you remember what he says, he says, Our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. And then verse 2 picks up, make room for us in your hearts. And you kind of see that same attitude kind of carrying right through. And you can see this is an admonition that's close to Paul's heart. He takes two times uh, within just a number of uh, paragraphs to make sure that they hear this. Because people who are involved in the gossip, people who are involved in the hurt and the slander and they create the types of situations of honor and dishonor and regarding as a deceiver, even though you're true and all of that, like the ministry of Isaiah and Jeremiah that we looked at before. And as we saw with Paul, uh, the, the uh, irony that's always part of the ministry, when you're somebody's hero and you're somebody's villain, at the same time, you, you're a blessing to somebody and, and to somebody else you're terrible. So those kinds of thoughts and the kinds of things that go around that, the gossip and the slander and the and the uh, dislike and the hate and the dishonor and all that, uh, they're not motivated by a deep sense of virtue, though they, people who do that pretend that they are. They're not motivated by a love of righteousness, though they usually pretend that they are. Uh, they're not motivated by a love for the one against whom they cast these untruths, but rather they're motivated by revenge or jealousy or bitterness or desire for prominence or self-seeking or whatever. They don't long for the purity of the truth. They don't desire the unity of the church or they wouldn't do any of these things. So Paul wants to keep calling them back, and he opens himself up to be heard, and he says, now in like exchange, as you saw before, it's the noun antimistia, anti is in return, and mistos is wages. Here Paul simply says, as it's been paid to you, pay it back to me. I've extended to you love, extend it back to me. Love and affection long for a response, and that's what he means. As I'm dealing with you, please deal with me in that way too. And then he says, I speak as to children. He says, uh, open wide to us also, and that's a term of endearment. And, and this is a call. Paul says, I've opened wide to you. Please open wide to me. And this part appears to be very painful for Paul, and yet he continues to lead by example. He's asking for the love of a troubled church. He doesn't hesitate to plead for it. He points out the roadblocks to it. He desires to see the church pure and holy and, und- and unified and loving and avoiding the chastening of disobedience. And so he's not afraid to love them enough to admonish them and correct them so that they'll respond in the way that they should. And that becomes an example of commended ministry. And so in 2 Corinthians 6, 11 and 13, Paul says, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. And verse 13 says, what? Open wide to us also. 
And so both of those appeals come in 11 and 13, and then we get to chapter 7, verse 2, and he urges their response, and this is his encouragement for reconciliation. He says this, he says, make room for us in your hearts. And that's really principle number one. If there's going to be reconciliation between people, if there's going to be reconciliation inside the church, if if that's going to happen, then love is going to have to be a two-way street. Make room is the aorist active imperative, koreo, uh, the verb is aorist imperative. That just means, as you think about that, Paul is looking for some specific action now. As opposed to being present active imperative where he just says, do this. He's saying, listen, there needs to be some movement, some actual action that occurs. You begin to move in the right direction. This has, this, this is to be the case. And I'm, he's looking for the process then to move forward. He, he desires to have a right relationship with them, but love has to be a two-way street for there to be reconciliation. So the way he words it may suggest Paul believed there was still some reticence on the part of the Corinthian church to love him. And in the earlier appeal in, in verse, chapter 6, verse 11, he stresses that his own heart was opened wide to them. And verse 13, open wide is in the passive. Let your heart be opened. In other words, my heart is open wide. Let your heart be opened, he says in verse 13. And then he, in verse 12, he says, you're not restrained by us but you are restrained in your own affections. So Paul says, you know, we're not doing anything to cause you to squeeze us out of your hearts. We're not giving you any reason for the reality of your lack of affection. That's the sense of the passage. But just because Paul says it, it doesn't mean that they're going to believe him, right? And that's the continuing problem in ministry, right? Regarded as deceivers and yet true. Uh, you know, they may say, uh, yes, you are, Paul. Yes, you are doing things to cause the problem. Paul's pretty clear. He says, listen, I haven't done anything. I haven't restrained you. You're restrained in your own affections. You're not restrained by us. Paul says, I haven't done anything to hinder this relationship. And as we looked at before, not all problems are a two-way street. And this one isn't. Problem is on behalf of the church. They're not extending love to Paul. But that's what people say, though, right? You must have done something, Paul. There must be some reason why they don't like you. So you've done something uh, that created this problem. Paul says, you know, you're restrained in your own affections. You're the ones who believe the lie. You've closed your heart. You've put yourself in a narrow place. Paul says, you've squeezed me out. You've made your heart small. Uh, You don't love me, Paul says. And you can really feel the hurt there as Paul desires very much to have that right relationship with him because Paul's open and love likes to be reciprocated. So when we we see Paul say in 2 Corinthians 7, 2, he says, make room for us in your hearts. He's really pressing the process to move forward. Now's the time to move forward in this. Desires to have a right relationship with them, but love has to be a two-way street for there to be reconciliation. So the implication is the remaining restriction in the relationship was on their side. And here's the deal. Here's Paul. So he's doing his thing, and there's been a lot of misunderstanding, right? Paul is serving as an under uh, under roar. He's serving as a table waiter. He's doing the things he's supposed to do. He's bringing admonition when he needs to. He's, he's giving direction when he needs to. And, and there's been a lot of misunderstanding and, and a lot of paradox where believers should have had the discretion to understand the difficulty of ministry. And and they should have known and had discretion that there were was more to the story than perhaps they heard. And yet, instead of looking for the truth, they just rejected Paul and narrowed their heart and jumped to conclusions. So this is what Paul's trying to overcome. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 8, he says, you know, by glory and dishonor, you will report good report regarded as deceivers and yet true. He, he's trying to overcome this, see, a whole series of gossips and backbitings and, and, and false understanding and false narrative and, and, and not a discretion about how things are working. And he's trying to overcome all of this here with the church. And here's Paul. So he sacrificed a lot physically, materially, emotionally, and yet as a faithful minister commended by the Lord in doing all of that. 
And he's the one pleading for love as a two-way street. And here's the thing to consider. It would have been easy in the flesh for Paul to say or feel, why am I chasing this down? Right? I mean, if you're the one who's been offended, it'd be easy to say, why am I chasing this down? I've been through all of this. I've done what I'm supposed to do. There's misunderstanding there. They don't know the whole story. They can't know the whole story sometimes. Why, why am I chasing this down? Why is it me, it would be easier for Paul to say, why is it me who's trying to convince these folks who have said so many harsh things and did their best to make me feel like a failure, to make be, their best to make me feel inadequate, uh, why, why am I chasing this down? And Paul really encapsulates their attitude uh, back in 1 Corinthians 4.8. Remember this? He says, you are already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. So he uses a little sarcasm. You know, this is where you think, this is what they think about themselves, see. And so he just makes some sarcastic remarks towards them. You know, you're already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. So there's the sarcasm. You, you're not where you think you are, he says. You're not as spiritual as you think you are. For I think, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. That's that whole, that's that whole, uh, irony that is constantly there as part of the ministry, right? You're doing what you're supposed to do. You're, you're addressing the issues that have to be addressed, teaching the word, all that stuff. And the Lord has made apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent for Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're without honor, see? And that's the general attitude. So it would have been easy to say, why am I chasing this down? But Paul didn't do that. Why? Because that isn't the way the church works, see? That's not the way the church is supposed to work. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, uh, we see that very clearly. It says, let us consider how to, what? Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Have you read that passage before? Did you know that's part of the one another's of the, of the word of God? You're supposed to be considering how to simulate each other to love and good deeds. It's part of the job that you're supposed to do as a believer amongst the church. Does that mean there are never going to be any hardships in the church? No. Does that mean that there'll never need to be any admonition and correction? No. There might need to be some. In fact, part of that process might need to be some of those things, see. And the church today faces the same problem it's always faced as, as, as the most diverse group on the planet. But the, this group of people with such diversity and diverse backgrounds has a common bond. And it's illustrated very well in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. I want you to, I'm going to pick up a word here, and I think it's a very important one for you to know. And perhaps you've read it, but maybe you didn't understand how it works. But look at 1 Peter 1, 22. I've got it on the screen. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. So what's that general reference to? It's general reference to salvation, right? In obedience to the truth, that's always referring to what? That's referring to initially to salvation. Salvation is parallel to being obedience to the truth. So the truth about your sin nature, the truth about your position before Christ, all of that kind of thing. Response and obedience to the truth is parallel to salvation. Now, since you have, so it passed, this has already occurred, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. So now you're able to love. You weren't able to before. Now you are because you're born again. The Holy Spirit's there to help you. So if you're born again, it's because you were obedient to the truth of the gospel and your obedience to the gospel put you in a position to sincerely love the church. Then what? What's it say? Fervently 
love one another from the heart. So it would be easy for Paul to just let it go and say, you know, they're always going to be that way. Uh, they are given this bent of contention and gossip and rebellion, and I'm not going to waste my feelings, and I'm tired of getting hurt, and just leave it at that. Just shake the dust off his feet, if you would, and move on. But he didn't, because that isn't how the church is supposed to be. And even in the middle of hardship or misunderstanding or grievance or even outright offense, whatever it is, Paul, uh, Peter addresses it a few uh, chapters later in First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Now listen to the word again, and I'll give you the definition. So above all, because you've been born again, you're able to do this. That's what we saw earlier. Now above all, so before everything else in the church, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says, you were equipped to love this way, and love this way even covers a direct offense. And then we've seen this word before, but I want to pull it out for you. Fervent is the adjective ectenes. It is from the verb ectino, which means to stretch out or to stretch forth. So I want you to put this together. Peter says to keep present active participle fervent in your love for one another. And I think it, it's kind of a funny word to use. And if, if you want to get the understanding of it to some extent, the idea is kind of a stretchy kind of love. Actino is a, is a stretchy, fervent love is a stretchy kind of love. And so I was thinking about you know, the best way to describe that, lycra. Lycra, right? The more lycra is in a fabric, the more you can pull it over stuff, right? That's the idea. A fervent kind of love is a lycra kind of love. It covers. And Peter instructs the church that the love they should have for one another is a flexible, durable, covering kind of love. Why? Well, the last part, because love covers a multitude of sins. That kind of love in the church can cover a lot of problems between people. It's a lot of responsibility on you, isn't it? The requirement from Peter is that we fervently love one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. That follows, doesn't it? Because our reaching out or a stretching out kind of love is a love that covers over offenses between people. You see. And that's an important concept to incorporate into our actions and interactions. And it fits very well with our understanding of 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't it? Remember 1 Corinthians 13, don't we? Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, it's not easily provoked, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs suffered, love bears all things, believes all things, the best about people, hopes all things, endures all things, no matter what comes along, love never fails. That's an ectonase kind of love, isn't it? If you want to think about love, and then all those things we see in 1 Corinthians 13, that fits perfectly with what we understand from 1 Peter chapter 4. And remember, the evidence that Paul's heart is really open wide is his deep, true love. It was, it was no matter how they were treating him, he still had them in his heart. And now we know really the answer to our hypothetical question about Paul, which is why am I chasing this now? Why am I still following after people who continue to say unkind things about me and continue to gossip and all that? 
why is it me who's trying to convince these folks who've said so many harsh things, who did their best to make me feel like a failure and inadequate? Why am I chasing this now? Well, because controlled by the Holy Spirit, Paul has this fervent, consistent, stretchy love that covers up the offense, doesn't he? And we know that that's a one-way street right now. It's from Paul to them. But if there's going to be reconciliation, there's going to have to be love as a two-way street. See? This is the key. So his desire is to reconcile, even though he's, he's conducted himself correctly within the church. If there's going to be reconciliation, and Paul senses there's still animosity there, so he says, make room for us in your hearts. It's got to be some movement. He's looking for a specific movement in the right direction. He's pressing for the process to move forward. He desires to have a right relationship with them, so the implication is the remaining restriction on the relationship is on their side. So he says in the last part of verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Now, some of the church had their own feelings about Paul, but they weren't entitled to their own set of facts. He might not know all the situations regarding everybody that Paul dealt with. Paul's being clear here and says, listen, we wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of one. Those are the facts. You're not entitled to your own set of facts. He says, this is the facts. You have your own feelings about me, perhaps. This is principle number two. If there's going to be reconciliation, the truth may have to be spoken in love. And that's the second thing. That's that love has to be a two-way street. And then some, some clarity may have to be there. If there's not going to be a stretchy kind of love on one side, and just on the other side, right? then there may have to be some truth spoken in love. If there's that stretchy, kind of flexible, fervent kind of love on both sides, you probably don't have to go through the whole thing. Why? Because love covers a multitude of offenses. It's only on one side there may have to be some discussion going on. And reconciliation is, is the heart of relationships, and there may have to be some clarity. And so Paul just says this, we wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. And of course, again, he says this, and they may not believe him, right? That's some of the problem that he's had consistently in the church. But if their love isn't stretchy and it isn't covering the offenses, and mark this, whether they are a misunderstanding or actual offenses, okay? Because they could be either one. Fervent love can cover both. But they aren't manifesting that. So he's going to take this next step and make the facts clear. And Paul asserts his integrity on three different levels. And each of these is the aorist tense is employed. So the idea there is indicating that he has in mind the particular occasion of his past visits to Corinth and the way he conducted himself there. Okay? Now, each of these is in the aorist. So we wronged no one. So that's the word for injustice. Etikisomen, the ancients would, would refer to that as breaking some law. That's a breaking of a law. Paul says we wrong no one, and that certainly could be the case here. We didn't break any laws, but I think it's more likely the general sense, which is hurting or injuring someone. We didn't injure or hurt anyone, Paul says. We wronged no one. And Paul was clear. He's innocent of that. And then the second one, he says, we corrupted no one. Ephitheramen, this is the word for spoiling. The Corinthians would understand it as bringing something to a worse state. The verb ephithero uh, is used really three times in the Corinthian correspondence, and, and these uses help us understand what Paul is referring to. In 1 Corinthians 3.17, that's the first one we'll stop at. Uh, he says, um, he uses it after speaking of the building of the church on the foundation of Christ by various ministers, all of whose work is to be tested. So he uses this word, Fifth year, he says, 
First Corinthians three seventeen. If any man destroys, that's fifth year, the temple of God, God will destroy again. That's our word. Him for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So the idea there is um, doing something that would cause the temple of God to be foiled, to be spoiled, to take in a direction it shouldn't be. The building corrupted in some way. Okay. And Paul just warns, he says, if any man who comes along and builds on the foundation of Christ uh, spoils it in some way, God will destroy him, spoil him. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, we see the word again, Thetherusen, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts. There it is. Bad company corrupts good morals. The general admonition is what? Whoever you hang around with, it's going to create an influence on you, and bad company corrupts good morals. You're going to have a difficult time. Of course, that goes very well with being yoked together with unbelievers, right? So a close personal friendship with someone trying to pull in the same direction is impossible for an unbeliever. Bad company corrupts. Bad company spoils good morals. And we can see another little illustration from Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap what? Put the wren. That's our word corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So in all probability, therefore, then Paul's meaning in our present context is that he, he, as he says this, he has caused the church no harm. In other words, his teaching, his actions, his comments, his admonitions, everything that he's had to do, he's not corrupted or brought someone to a worse state in their walk with the Lord. He didn't sow to the flesh. Now you may say, well, maybe it's people, you know, what about the guy who was having an affair right in the church? I mean, I'm sure his relationship with the Lord wasn't that great when he had to leave. Well, that's not the same now, is it? An admonition to walk in holiness is not corrupting, is it? The response back is not Paul's responsibility, is it? And as I told you before, when you have to admonish someone, as we looked at, you know, your job as a minister of reconciliation and your job as an ambassador of Christ, sometimes you have to correct people. The fact that you have to correct them at all means that they're not walking with the Lord. So you shouldn't expect initially that response back to be spirit control, right? But you desire very much to see that happen as they think about the words that you said and as the church is brought in to, to be a witness to the sinful act and uh, they're, they're brought to repentance. That's the desire. But Paul says, in general, I've corrupted no one. Everything that he has had to do, he hasn't corrupted or brought someone to a worse state of the walk with the Lord. He didn't sow to the flesh. He wasn't bad company, as we saw earlier. He didn't bring habits or freedoms into the church. That's First Corinthians 3, 7. Uh, that created a stumbling block or encouraged immoral behavior. So the things he allowed in his own life didn't create a problem for someone else. He didn't do any of those things that corrupted the church. He goes, we corrupted no one. And then thirdly, Paul says we took advantage of pleonecteo, we took advantage of no one. To take advantage of someone usually is a result of a motivation for greed. This has to do a lot of times with money. His motivation to minister wasn't to scoop up what he could get. Paul said this many times to the church. And this is one of four places where the verb to take advantage of is used by Paul in this epistle. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, so that no advantage, that's our word, uh, would be, would be uh, taken by, uh, of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And the idea is that the congregation would be taken advantage of by Satan if he's allowed to rob it of one of the members. 
And then we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse uh, 14 through 18. And this really gives us the context as it appears to fit our own passage. In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, we're going to see this uh, months from now. Verse 14, he says, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you. I will not be a burden to you. That's a clue, right? I'm not going to be a burden to you. We don't understand that from 1 Corinthians, right? That he didn't take any kind of support from the church because there were people in the church that thought, why, why should we pay you? We, we shouldn't be paying you. And so Paul didn't take any support. Why? Because he didn't want to be a stumbling block to people who didn't want to bring, uh, didn't want to help. Okay? So he goes, it's the third time I'm going to come to you and will not be a burden to you. And here is the other one. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. So that's another clue. Okay, about our word. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. And so we see that same, he loves them with a flexible kind of love, right? A covering kind of love, but that's not reciprocated. We still see the same attitude as we move into this other letter that we're looking at now. But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. So again, he's using a little sarcasm. This is what they're saying about him. So he's just kind of throwing it back at him. I didn't take advantage of you monetarily, but I took advantage of you deceiving you about what I was really about. Certainly I have not taken, this is our word, advantage of you. Though any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go. I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take, here's our word again, advantage of you. Did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? So this is some of the battle Paul has to fight for the church. See. Paul claims personal integrity in financial matters. He's not used his position for personal gain. He's made sure that this was the case for those he sent to them. So everybody he sent in his name had the same exact attitude. Okay, they may. So this Corinthian church may have their own opinion of Paul. But they don't get their own set of facts. And these are obviously the things that are circulating around about Paul. And they aren't walking in a fervent love to cover these things. And so Paul has to speak the truth in love, set the record straight so that there may be a chance at reconciliation. If I really love, if I'm truthful and honest, that's what Paul's doing here, then perhaps there's going to be a chance. And he's honest about what God what what God once said. He's honest about what God once done. He's honest about them. He's honest about himself. And this is the stuff of real love. See, and sometimes I think most often the truth hurts, but, but it's, it's loving because it's the truth. And even he even had to confront them about whether or not they were really believers. And I'm sure that truth hurt later on. We'll see, test yourselves. He says to them and see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? So it comes right down to that, see. There are certain thing, ways that you need to walk if you're a believer. That's why sometimes it's, it's, uh, we're more inclined to say, well, I'm not sure that person's even born again. Why? Well, because every admonition that we understand from the Word of God that should be governing their lives is not being embraced. And when that's the pattern of the life, then what's the conclusion? Is Christ even in you? See? And that's what we get to here when we get to First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 13, 5. It says, I'd like you to test yourself and see if you're in the faith, do you not recognize this about yourself? Because see, a pattern of behavior, beloved, a pattern of, of unforgiveness, a pattern of gossip, a pattern of hardness, a pattern of following after the world, a pattern of looking up with unbelievers. Listen, beloved, that is the pattern of the unredeemed. Why Paul has to say finally at the end of this, of this letter, he says, listen, test yourself, see if you're in the faith. 
What's that mean? It just means examine yourself and the things that you do on a regular basis, do they align with what the Word of God says? See? And see if Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. But that, that was important because that was the truth. See? And I'm sure that that hurt. See? And you've probably had to say that before to people. I don't, I don't think you're born again. I've had to say it in my own family. I know you claim to be a Christian, but nothing about your life lines up with what Christ said. How are you a believer? I don't think you're even a believer. So he closes this epistle, 2 Corinthians 13, 8, by saying, we can, you know, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. I've got to speak the truth. See, and that's what he's doing here. See. So, if you love somebody, you tell them the truth about God, about, about the Word, God's standards, about God's requirements, or you don't really love them. And if you don't love them enough to bring them into the knowledge of the truth from God, then you don't love them very much. Isn't that true? If you say you love somebody, but you're not willing to tell them what the truth of God says and what it says about them, then you don't really love them. Love doesn't hide saving truth. Love doesn't hide purifying truth. It speaks it because it cares deeply about the object of its affection. Now, let's look at verse 3 as we prepare to close for the day as we kind of wrap up our time. Paul just confirms this. He confirms his love. He, can, he confirms the truth of the need for reconciliation. That the church can't be the church if there isn't a fervent love, a stretchy kind of covering, uh, durable love that reaches out and covers over offenses. See, Otherwise, you're always chasing down offenses between each other. The church can't function well that way, beloved, because you're more concerned about the fact that you got offended than you are about furthering the mission right? and doing your ministry. And you're offended, so you're not going to come and do your thing, or you're not going to give, or whatever. See, that's just childish behavior. Church can't function that way. And Paul is at the point where he's, he's asking for some movement. I want to see you move in this direction. See, He confirms his love. He confirms the truth of the need for reconciliation. The church can't be the church if there isn't a fervent love. And, and this church still hasn't moved off of their evaluation of Paul. And so Paul is speaking hard truth and love. And then he asserts his heart for reconciliation. Look at verse 3 if you would. He says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And that is principle number three. If there's going to be reconciliation, love has to be a two-way street. If there's going to be reconciliation, sometimes you have to speak the truth in love. Because if there's not going to be a stretchy, fervent kind of love on one side, then you're going to have to clarify the facts. And then this last one, needs to be a continuing affirmation. I love this one. The permanent bond that exists between believers. It has to be an appeal for a commonality, right? The most diverse group on the planet sits in churches every single Sunday. So obviously, there's going to be some differences in opinion. There's going to be differences in the way you do things and the way you think about life, obviously. But there's some commonality there, isn't there? And I think that's what Paul's appealing to. And again, the whole thing can be taken wrong by the church. Right? So Paul affirms that he isn't condemning them. So speaking the truth in love is not condemning. Okay, As he clarifies what's going on, that's not condemning the church. That's not condemning individuals. Truth is truth. Love doesn't hide saving truth. It doesn't hide purifying truth. It cares deeply about its object of affection. So it just says what it has to say. See, Paul just affirms he isn't condemning them because that's often the comeback when you have to speak the truth to bridge the gap. You know, if there isn't grace there on the other side, see, no fervent love that covers a multitude of offenses, then in order for reconciliation to occur, it has to be hashed out. Paul says, I'm not rendering a judgment. That's the idea. Catachrisis, condemn. That's what the noun means, a rendered judgment to be condemned. And Paul really has to tiptoe around everything here. Do you see this? I mean, he has to. He speaks the truth in love, and then he goes back and says, I'm not condemning you. 
He's making, you know, he's dealing with them like children. And that's what he said numerous times because they're just so tossed around by every wave of doctrine and every, every, uh, you know, thing that people say. Right? They just grab onto that instead of thinking good things and love, you know, the first Corinthians 7, 13 kind of love, you know, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, right? Love never fails. Doesn't keep record of wrong. There's none of that going on here, see, on the church side. So Paul has to tiptoe around all of that, see. And he's wise enough to know that they're going to perhaps take everything he says in the worst possible way. Do you know people like that? Everything you say is interpreted in the worst possible way. There's no grace extended, right? The bridge you have to cross over is the one you're burning, okay? Grace extended. There's nothing here. So he's tiptoeing around everything, taking everything in the worst possible way. He says, for I've said before that you are in our hearts. He said exactly that expression of sincere love several times in the letter that we have, that you're in our hearts. Our hearts are open wide to you. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, you are our letter. I love this, this uh, expression from Paul to the church. You're our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. See, Paul says, you're in our hearts. Second Corinthians 6, 11, our mouth has spoken freely to you, o Corinthians, our heart is opened wide. See, again, he just affirms his feelings for them. This is Paul expressing love. And that's, an imp that's important, beloved. You know, if we follow Paul's example, we learn how to say it in lots of different ways to one another. Clear, not just by our words, of course, but by our actions and having a stretchy kind of covering, durable love, a fervent love. But you have to say it a lot, too, to make sure people know that that's the case. And Paul, you know, he's a tiptoe around, but he wants to make sure, listen, I'm not condemning you. I've said before, you're in our hearts. See? To die together, he says, and live together. Now, normally, as you look at that, it, it seems odd to you, right? We, we can find the saying uh, way back in ancient writings all the way up to the present, and normally the saying goes how? We will live and die together, right? We, we understand that. That's a common saying. We're going to live and die together. I mean, you know, if you have a, a friend of yours and they're close, we'll live and die together. We're sticking with it. You know, it's, it, it nothing's going to separate us, right? And the idea that those involved in a friendship that will be sustained throughout life and will keep them together even if death is involved. Even Peter said that to Jesus, remember? In Mark chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus told Peter he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. What did Peter say? Peter kept insisting, even if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. I've lived with you. Even if I have to die with you, I, I'm going to stick with you. See, So we're used to live and die, but Paul switches it and it's not accidental. I think it's notable here that Paul reverses that order, and, the, and it's, this is an affirmation, and this is what I was talking about before, of the bond that all believers share. There has to be more than just the offense, okay? If there's not going to be a stretchy kind of love there, and you're going to have to chase down every single thing like, like an infant, then there's going to have to be a bond that's greater than just, just the hurdle of your expectations, okay? There has to be more there uh, there has to be a higher thing there that you're aiming for than just what you think the other person should do. And this is it, see. Not to live and die, but to die and live together. Why? Because it's by dying that we live 
right? It's by suffering we're prepared for glory. You have to lose your life to what? You have to lose your life to what? You can't be born again, beloved, unless you're willing to lose your life. You're not going to find it unless you give it up. See, You die with Christ and you're raised with Christ. I don't think we're making too much of this. Paul could have said it. It was very common to live and die together. He could have said it that way. It's not how he says it. You're raised with Christ to never die. So you died with Christ and then you're raised with Christ and to, to live eternally. And that is a wonderful permanent bond that every believer has. We will spend eternity together. Uh, to be a Christian is really to expose yourself perhaps to suffering hardship. Uh, to be a believer, is, it's, it's possible that you know a death could come. As we looked earlier in our study, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore what? All died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. How do you recognize him? Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him in this way no longer. We recognize everyone as having died in Christ and having raised eternally and will spend eternity together. We die together, we live together. And we know every believer in this way above all other ways. See, So when you think about reconciliation, you don't want to be like the ladies in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul reminds them of the common bond they have. Do you remember this? I brought this up to you maybe many, many years ago. I find this interesting as I read this in Philippians chapter 3. So Paul is talking to the church in Philippi. And he reminds them as he begins to close out the letter, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's all of us. That's your reality. Your citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. As a believer, we look forward to that day, right? Our citizenship is registered there. We live here. We have to do the things of the world, but we're in the world, not of the world. But our citizenship is in heaven. When you come to know Christ as your Savior, you become an alien here. You're not home here anymore. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have that common hope, don't we? That's that's common between you and me. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That's you, that's me. Both of us will be transformed from this humble body, this unredeemed flesh, into the it's something that resembles Christ. We don't know exactly what that's going to be, but we know we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Remember? So we understand this. He's going to transform our body of our humble state in the conformity of the body of his glory. That's you. That's me. We, we have that bond. We're all going to be, we're waiting, we're, our citizenship is in heaven. We're eagerly waiting for a savior. And we all share the, the joy of this transformed body that's coming. And that's going to happen by the extension of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So this is, this is the real deal. Nothing's going to sideswipe that. I take that off of its mark. This is going to happen to you. It's going to happen to me. We have this bond. Okay. We die together, we live together. We have a citizenship in heaven. We wait for a savior. He's going to transform our bodies. All of this is common to all of us. Okay? Now, look at verse 1 of Philippians chapter 4. And it's right there in front of you. Therefore. So he starts with therefore. So that's calling back what? Everything he just got through saying. The commonality that every believer has. Therefore. So in light of everything I've just said. 
my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then look at verse 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, this is how my mind works, okay? Do you want to be Yodia and Sintiki for all eternity in heaven? Because I'll tell you, when you meet them, what's the first thing you're going to think? That's embarrassing, right? I mean, we'll be glorified and we'll no longer find fault like we're doing right now, like I'm doing. But this is precisely what we're talking about here, right? Paul says there needs to be a fervent, Peter says there needs to be a fervent kind of stretchy covering love that you demonstrate to each person. You have that. Each person has the ability to have that, right? And Paul says there's a commonality that we all share. I'm not condemning you. We die together. We live together. He says to the, to the Philippians, you have a citizenship in heaven. You're all, we're all eagerly waiting for a Savior. He's going to transform every one of our bodies into, the, into his glorious state. See? And then in, in light of everything I said, and the fact that you're my joy and my crown, he's just affirming, you know, he's bringing some... He's bringing some admonition to them, but he's just affirming, I love you. I mean, I don't dislike you because I'm saying this, but all of you, so telling the church, urge these two women to live in harmony in the Lord. So what's the problem? No reconciliation there, some hardship, some hard times. They're not stretchy, covering love. No. Okay. Why live in harmony? Why reconcile your differences? Well, you die with Christ. You're going to be transformed into your glorious body, which you'll dwell in forever along with every other believer. Hi, who's this, Jesus? Well, this is Yodi and Sintiki. Oh... That's what you'd be doing, right? Do you really want to follow that example? Do you want to be like them? If you're going, oh, Jesus might be going, oh. For all, for all eternity, this will be the example of what not to do. And they'll be known for a stretch of time where they weren't reconciled to one another. In spite of all the commonality that they share, that's Paul's, Paul's uh, plea here. See, So you don't want to continue and, irre and be irreconciled with one another. And part of the way to accomplish that is to be reminded that we have a bond that supersedes all issues. If you're going to have to hash it all out and you're not just going to let love cover a multitude of offenses, then you're going to have to realize that there's a higher bar than just what you expect from someone else. There's a bond that supersedes everything that you have as differences, and that bond binds you together at a higher level. You need to move past all that other stuff because this is no time for petty Christianity. This is, this is no time for fickleness. The church can only function fully if they're fervently loving one another. This is a permanent deal, see? This is not a time to waste on hard feelings and offenses. This is a time to present the gospel that saves. This is a time to sow the seeds of the gospel that saves. This is a time to wake up and see that the seeds have sprouted so that you can teach the truth that sanctifies. See? And so he calls them to reconcile like those in the church in Korea who, who realize, you know, if it's a cross that raises me close to you, then so be it. And they realize that their bond was higher than even the huge offense that had occurred. So he calls them to reconcile because he's concerned that the Corinthians do not miss out on the opportunity to do what they were saved to do 
because they're hanging on to the unloving types of attitudes that prevail when, when reconciliation is not there. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. We're grateful for the bond we have in Christ. We thank you for the higher bar of this commonality that we have. And there isn't a, a soul in this room who hasn't been offended or hurt or has misunderstood something or understood it correctly and had hard feelings. Not a single person. Some of it has been as a result of a testimony, a good testimony. And for that, we understand that we should rejoice because we share the sufferings of Christ and it's because they crucified the Master so they will persecute us. Some of it is as a result of differences of opinion or feelings or how things should go, personal preferences. But in all of those things, we're called by the Apostle Paul to love, to reconcile, to get to the point where we're functioning as a body, the church then, the church now, functioning as a body that's unified in the calling that they have. Lubricating everything with a fervent love, which just believes the best and hopes all things and endures all things and love never fails. And these are high and holy and hard things. It's easy to talk and sing about love and about forgiveness and talk about it in the Word of God. Very difficult to do it. That's what we're called to do, Father, and I pray that you will empower us by the Holy Spirit who is in us. Peter very clearly says, because we have been redeemed, because we've been obedient to the truth, we have this type of love. Help us to express it to one another. Work your way out as you see fit amongst our congregation and how they interact with each other and churches around the world might embrace this kind of thing. That you can use us as you would until we see your Son. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. And all God's people said.